Amen. Amen. Yes, I would love the interaction today. Uh, welcome, everyone. My name is Trev. I am very privileged, and actually it's a great joy to be up here to preach on Resurrection Sunday. Uh, we've renamed it. It used to be called Easter Sunday around here. We call it Resurrection Sunday because Easter seems to have lost a lot of meaning uh, in our culture. And so we say resurrection because that is the central point of Christianity. It's actually the one thing that makes Christianity distinct among all the other religions. So if you're brand new to Christianity here this morning, you don't understand this, walk away from this with this one point that if Jesus has not risen from the dead, then everything else is futile. Everything else. It's the center point of, it's not just the cross, it's the empty cross that's the center point of Christianity. Yeah, it is. Amen. All right, we have some there today. Keep it up, Joel. Keep going. Keep going. Come on. Come on. Easter Sunday, everywhere around this city, we're, we're praying that Jesus is proclaimed. Everywhere around this city, we hope, we, we believe that the, the church in this city is proclaiming Jesus, and we want um, him to be wrote, lifted up this morning. We want him to be lifted up. It's all about Jesus here this morning. N.T. Wright says something really powerful, I think, when he says, take Christmas away, and in biblical terms, you've lost two chapters. At the front of Matthew and at the front of Luke. Nothing else. Take Easter away, and you don't have a New Testament. You don't have Christianity, as Paul says. You are still, that's what Johnny read, you are still in your sins. You take... You take the birth story of Jesus away and you still have the majority of the Bible left. Not that we're trying to take it away, but in comparison, you take the last days of Jesus and the death and the resurrection of Jesus and you no longer have a story. We shouldn't allow the secular world, he says, with its schedules and habits and para-religious events, its cute Easter bunnies to blow us off course. This is our greatest day. Yeah, that's it. This is our greatest day. I said as we were praying, this is like Super Bowl for the Christians. And if you're not into sports, this is like the halftime show of the Super Bowl for Christians. This is the best part of the year. In fact, even this week, I was so deeply convinced and convicted that we as Christians need to celebrate this more that I'm already starting to think about plans for next week about how to make it resurrection week I mean, that's what happened in our house. We had birthday, and it wasn't good enough. So we had birth week, because you needed more than just one day and one evening to celebrate the goodness of birth. So I'm going to say, let's start making plans already. Next week, let's make it a big week, where we're engaging with the resurrected Savior all week long, so that Sunday morning, this is just an overflow of what we've already been thinking about all week, instead of just one day of our week. But let's go back and tell the story. You have to hear the story. And if you're brand new to Urban Grace, welcome. This is not a normal Sunday. You can't recognize me for those of you who have been here because I have a tie on. It's like camouflage for our church. But I need to tell you the whole story because we are about Jesus. Here's the, the brief story about Jesus, the facts given surrounding his death. I'm going to be in Mark chapter 16 today. And I, I need to retell the story. So if you want to go ahead and turn to Mark chapter 16, and, and if you don't have a Bible, would you raise your hand and someone would love to bring you a Bible? If that's just your first Bible, then we want you to keep that. If you're just using a Bible today, uh, then uh, would you give it back after so someone else can use it who does not have a Bible? 
But as you're turning there to Mark chapter 16, it's the second book in the New Testament. It's just to the right of that halfway point called the New Testament and the Old Testament. And here are the facts surrounding the death of Jesus and ultimately the resurrection. We've looked at this, but I'll, I'll cut to the chase and say at the end of his life, things are coming to a close and Jesus knows that everyone is after him and, and that the religious Jewish leaders want to kill him. He knows that, so he's hiding out, essentially. He's incognito. He's trying to be just in the sidelines so he can time out his death just right. He knows he's going to go to the cross. He knows he's going to pay the price for sins, but he wants to do it perfectly so that the understanding of the Jewish Passover is hovering over the top, superimposed, so to speak, over the top of his death so they understand that he is, as we said, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's important for him, people to understand this. And What's crazy is that he's betrayed by one of his own people. He's hiding out in the garden. He's praying. He's seeking the Father at his last moments. And he's hiding out. And one of his best friends and the guy in charge of money is the one who points him out to the authorities who didn't really necessarily know who Jesus actually was physically at that time. And he has this kind of terrible trial activity. I mean, if we had this kind of trial in, in, in modern day, we would say this is a terrible mistrial. Terrible mistrial. It's completely one-sided. And there's this flip-flop encounter between the Roman governor of the area and the Israelite King Herod. It's interesting, his own king, the king of the Jews, King Herod didn't really want to kill Jesus because he didn't, he thought he was crazy, but not, but not a murderer, not an insurrectionist, not against the government, not against the religious leaders. And the, and the Roman governor didn't want to kill him because he was like, I, I don't understand what you see wrong with this guy. And so you have this kind of flip-flop between these two powers at the time that do not want to kill Jesus, but the religious leaders, the people who were supposed to know God's law the most, said that he was blasphemous. They wanted to kill him. They were looking for ways constantly. That's the whole story of Jesus in the New Testament. They're looking, they're seeking for ways to find if they can kill Jesus. And Jesus is exchanged at the end, face value, for a man who is actually guilty of insurrection, which is a violent attempt to overthrow the government. He is exchanged face value, which is amazing because that is so symbolic of our exchange for Jesus that it's actually we are violently opposed to Jesus before we know him and in his grace he kindly looks upon us as though we have his blood. They ultimately incriminate Jesus for blasphemy because when asked, when Jesus was asked if he was the Christ, here's what he replies. He not only says, I am the Christ. He says it in such a way that there is no mistake that he knows exactly who he is and who he claims to be. He says, I am. That doesn't mean a lot to you. Some of you are like, that's the Molson Canadian version of of propaganda to our country. It's not. It's actually deeply rooted in the Hebrew scriptures. And I am is God's way of saying, I was, I am, and I will always be. It's past, future, te- present. It's, it's, I've always existed. That's how God describes himself to the very first person who he reveals. And Jesus then says, I am. 
And you can imagine if you're a religious leader, you die for this. Jesus says, I am. Then he adds on asterisks. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. This is a double whammy. Son of man doesn't mean much uh, to you, but in the Hebrew scriptures, this is a descriptive term in Daniel chapter 7 that, that says there is going to be coming a future savior of the world that's going to have human-like qualities and yet be completely divine. It's a very complicated term. But it was always reserved for this amazing person who was going to show up and save Israel from their sins, save them from themselves. And Jesus says, I am. And you will see the Son of Man, me, seated at the right hand of power. I'm going to be next to God. It's him saying, I'm the king and the judge. This is where I would say, at this point, we have a decision to make. This man is crazy or he is the king. I say that regularly to you, that there is really nowhere in between here. He's not just a good teacher. He's not a good moralizer because a good moralizer would not lead people astray like that. I would be a good teacher if I talk about the word, but I wouldn't be a terrible teacher if I said, follow me and don't worry about Jesus. You would say, you're crazy and this is a cult. Jesus said, follow me, I am. I'm the son of man. I'm the one that the scriptures were talking about. And at this point, the religious leaders scourged him, which is a very harsh way of whipping. See, Pilate actually wanted to beat him close to death, but he didn't actually want to kill him. And so he said, like, take flesh out of him. They had this crazy thing called the cat of nine tails and you would literally whip it and it would dig into your skin and it would rip skin out when you pulled it away. Have you ever seen the Passion of the Christ? They actually depict this quite well. It's horrifying. I cannot hold back the tears when I watch that. I cannot imagine how painful that would have been. He was scourged, he was whipped, he was mocked. People spit on him. That's the most graphic way of disrespecting someone. I mean, you have to really despise someone to spit on them. Even today, right? It's not just gross. It's extremely disrespectful. I mean, if I went up to a, 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 the mayor of the city and I spit in his face, you would say that's not just not hygienic. You would say that's completely disrespectful. I'd probably go to jail for it. That's what they did to Jesus. They put a sign above his head that re read King of the Jews as a way of mocking. But what they could have put up as King of everyone. So that's what Jesus was claiming. King of everyone. He hung on a cross. He was crucified. He was executed in the most graphic, despicable way known. Jews didn't even have this in their repertoire of killing people. They had to like, send them to the Romans because the Romans decided that when they wanted to kill someone, they wanted to make a spectacle of them. They just didn't want to cut their heads off. That would have been a, a sane way of killing someone. They wanted them to hang on a tree and essentially they wanted them to suffocate to death. So that's how you died by crucifixion. You actually died by asphyxiation. That's why 
in order to kill someone fast, they usually broke their leg bones because in order to breathe on a cross, you'd have to push up on the little platform that they built you, breathe, and then sit back down. The way you hang on a cross just cuts off your oxygen. And so Jesus' oxygen was cutting off. He was bleeding to death. And on the cross, he looked on us with mercy because he, he began to experience the wrath of God towards sin so that you and I would never have to experience the wrath of God. Have you ever felt hatred from anyone? Like deep hatred, like they look at you and they hate you. You ever had a child say that to you? It's one of the meanest possible things you can say. I remember saying something to my mom along the lines of, you're a terrible mom. I remember feeling so bad about it. I, st I can remember it to this day. I was like, oh, I gotta find something that's really mean. You're the worst mom ever. But I never told my mom I hated her. I never looked my mom in the eye and said I hated her. This is what Jesus decided to take upon for us. He said, I will look at God and God can look on me and hate me so that as an act of love, I can save these people. Which is why you hear him, some of his last words on the cross, and they're very powerful, written in Aramaic, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's the only way you could respond if God had left you. Can you imagine that? It's hanging on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because that's the only response you could have. And then as he died, he also said, and John writes, it is finished. I love that. It's actually translated prosthemi. I'm not a Greek scholar. I read all this. You could find all this out yourself. I love that phrase because it doesn't just mean it is finished, it means paid in full. Have you ever gotten a bill that's overdue? You finally finished paying it off, maybe a mortgage. What do you have, a little ceremony? You burn it, paid in full. My mortgage is done. This is what Jesus did. Hangs on the cross, pays for our sins, puts a stamp in our hearts, paid in full. Yeah, somebody, come on. That's why it's so powerful for us, friends. So powerful for us. Painful, then he dies. Not the end of the story. Not the end of the story. When he dies, and I, I mistakenly kind of was like, he died uneventfully. No, he didn't actually die uneventfully. Some other gospel writers actually write that tombs started to open. And there was an earthquake. Now, earthquakes were pretty common, but to time it out for that had to be something crazy miraculous. One of the gospel writers says the temple veil was torn in two. What's fascinating about that, it was so symbolic and so powerful. The temple veil prevented unholy people from going into God's presence, holy people. So when Jesus died and said it is finished, he ripped it. It was like he ripped it with his hands and his blood. He ripped it in half. So there is no barrier between you and I and a holy God. Unholy people and a holy God. Yeah, come on, someone say amen. 
And then came Saturday. They probably spent Friday, it was, a, it was a Jewish Sabbath, and so it was a really remarkable time. And literally, the, uh, the Jews wouldn't have had a lot of time to do a proper burial, so they would probably just taken the body off the cross. One of the courageous men, Joseph, Joseph of Arimathea, took the body off the cross and just kind of laid it in a tomb because they couldn't do anything with it because on Sabbath day, you couldn't touch dead bodies. But Jews didn't crucify people. It was Romans who crucified people. In fact, Jews believed that if you leave someone hanging on a tree, a curse would come over the land. And so they were like, get that dead body off the tree as soon as possible. Lay him in the tomb and we'll deal with it later. So on Saturday, Sabbath, you know what you do as a Jew? Nothing. Can you imagine that day? I was thinking yesterday how easy it was to forget this in between Resurrection Sunday and, and Good Friday that what would you have if you didn't have Netflix and you sat around all day thinking about you had just witnessed the terrible crucifixion of your hero? Imagine that for a moment. What a lonely day. What a dark day. You have no idea. You're trying to recount, what the heck happened? You're, you're confused. You're scared. You're sad. You're in agony. You're confused as to what you're supposed to do next? Like we followed you, Jesus, and now what? Now, let me read our text. When the Sabbath was passed, I'm sure this was a little bit of some of the Jews going, oh, whew, Sabbath's passed. Finally, we can get on to life. And so this is where the first point comes in. After death, A.D., when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices, bought spices, so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb, and they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who is crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. Touch it. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb for trembling and astonishment had seized them and they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. No kidding. I mean, think about this. All this graphicness you had seen. These, by the way, are the same characters that in the book of Mark earlier watch him die and then watch him get put in the tomb. So think about that for a second. Who's ever been to a funeral? Okay. In a funeral... At times, you see an open casket with a body in it. It's a little shocking if you're not used to that. A little shocking. What would be more shocking, however, is if I walked into one of those rooms just after someone else and said, I've gone to see the body, and that person was sitting up or was gone. I'd be like, hold on here. What happened? What happened? These women come to the tomb, they expect, they're used to this. They're used to this. They're expecting to see a dead body. They don't see a dead body. They don't compute this in their heads. 
They're, they're going through things like, uh, who will roll the stone away for us? I have a picture of a, of a stone. It's usually a, kind of a thin, flat disc, and it's got, a little, um, it's got a little slot in it. And you can see it's kind of up, and then the, and then the tomb, it would be, the hole for the tomb would be down a little bit. So in, in other words, it would be a lot easier to close the door of the tomb than it would be to open it, right? Because you don't really need to open it all that often to be honest. I mean, there's some creeps in those days, but that's a little creepy. If you, you don't have to worry too much about opening. So, so th- they're thinking like, okay, well, we could possibly close the tomb, or maybe they did help close the tomb. Who knows? But how are we going to roll this stone? I mean, I just moved, and the ladies in my house, they don't do the heavy lifting. This is a relatively tough thing to do, right? So there's three women, Two women at least. How are we going to get this thing up? How are we going to anoint the body? They weren't embalming it. That's what Egyptians did. Jews didn't embalm a body. What they did was respected the body. They believed that what happened to a, a body really mattered. And so they would lay the body in the tomb. They would anoint it with some spices because I don't know if you know this, but bodies, once they die, they don't smell all that great. And so they put a lot of spices around it so at least while the body was decaying, it wouldn't reek so bad. And then once the body had decayed to the point where you just have bones, then we take those bones, they respected the dead that much, and put them in boxes and then bury them. This is, this is the normal Jewish way of doing things. So they're basically like, we're going to go in this tomb, anoint this body, this corpse. I mean, it's a corpse. They saw a corpse go into the tomb. And they show up, and despite the fact that Jesus had reminded them repeatedly, they don't really know what to do with this. They really, they they respond in pretty much the same way you and I would always respond. A little bit of fear, or maybe a lot of fear, and a lot of awe. That's our response. And there's an angel there which is very common, actually, in, in kind of biblical stories for angels to be messengers of God. It's not necessarily common for you and I. I haven't met a lot of angels that I know of. I mean, my girls are cute, but they're not angels, okay? But this was, they see an angel there who's going to speak on behalf of the risen Savior. Why are you here? He's not here. He's risen. He's not here. Like, I think if I was showing up to the tomb, I would just be like, can you, can you say that again? Okay, I know he's not here, but maybe I've got, I, I got some after Sabbath things happening and I, I'm not just hearing this. He's not here. Where, where is he? What, what have you done with the body would be what I would be thinking. Not like, how did he come back from the dead? That would be too hard to comprehend. But here's the amazing thing. Jesus is just carrying along with the story that he knows is there. He told them this repeatedly. I will be delivered to the chief priests. I will be delivered to the religious leaders of the Jews at the time. I will die. I will rise again. I'll meet up with you guys in Galilee. We have a big meet up there. Are you catching this? Okay. 
I'll review for you again because you don't look that impressed. I will be delivered over to the Jews. I will die a death. You'll see me die. They'll poke a spear in my side after I'm dead to prove that I'm dead. You'll watch me go into a tomb. I'll rise again and I'll catch up with you guys in Galilee, which is near my hometown. Somebody say amen to that. So remarkable. My big question, anyone who says like Christianity made this up, I was like, how do you make that up exactly? That doesn't seem to be the kind of thing that you would make up. Like, yeah, we, we, anyways. So hard to describe. So if you're here this morning, you're like, I, I'm struggling still to figure this out. This resurrection thing isn't all super clear in my head. I don't have all the facts. I would say this, you're in great company. Do you know how long it took some of these people to believe? There was a guy who Jesus was like, I want to show you the hole in my hand. And he put his finger in the hand. And he's like, I still doubt. Some of you are like that. No amount of evidence will ever help you. Doesn't matter how correct the Bible is. It doesn't matter any of these things. You still struggle with doubts. You're in good company. You're in the rest of our company. This is a mystery to us all. There are so many questions about this. I think that's why heaven has to be so long. Because it's going to take that long to answer all these questions. How did you do that? How did that happen? Why would you do that? Tell me again. Tell me again. Then tell me another time. This is amazing. You gotta hear this. Tell them again. Tell these guys. This morning, if you have doubts here this morning, you're in good company. This morning, if you have fear, trepidation, confusion, awe, and all of these emotions mixed up, you're in good company. Look at the text. It's exactly what they felt. If you are trying to propagate a myth, this is the worst possible kind of myth and worst kind of way you could do it. Women actually in those days didn't have the authority as witnesses. Even if you disagree with it, that's the way it was in those times. I'm, I thank the Lord it's not that way now. But in those times, you would never, if you wanted to propagate that myth, you'd never leave it in the hands of like a one-sided mom and two women with no one there to prove it. And they didn't get it. And the angel was like, go tell people. And they're like, can't. I don't even understand this. It's amazing. Jesus, his whole life has done miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle for people. And they're like, I can't wait to tell people. He says, don't tell anyone. Then he rises from the dead and he says, tell everyone. They're like, can't. It's the strangest story, isn't it? That's why it's an awesome story. So what does this mean? Resurrection. Well, let's go through a little bit. Man, I have 36 minutes. Are you kidding me? Speaking of miracles, how am I ever going to get through the resurrection in 36 minutes? Do not be alarmed. I mean, that's the first thing Jesus has to say to us all the time. Do not be alarmed. Like, don't be freaked out by this. That's why it's so important when people don't understand Christianity that we respond like, don't, don't be alarmed. I know this kind of freaks you out and it takes a while to get it, so let me sit with you while we figure this out. That's Jesus' mode. 
You seek Jesus of Nazareth. I said, of course they seek Jesus of Nazareth. They were not expecting some spirit to pop out of the tomb. You know, this is, this is what's so amazing is that, you know, we sometimes, I, I read some of the very critical stuff of Jesus Christ. You know, there's, there, there are books that are written called, Did Jesus Actually Even Humanly Exist? And there's books written about this. People that state things that I think, uh, they, they don't make very good arguments, but they make arguments. Some are better than others, obviously. But they were not wondering whether Jesus existed humanly. They were seeking Jesus of Nazareth. That's what they knew. They were seeking Jesus as kind of a teacher. That's why they kept calling him rabbi. That's what it means, teacher, teacher. I have a friend here who keeps calling me rabbi, kind of like it. Not gonna lie to you. You have my permission to call me rabbi because it's kind of funny. Teacher, that's all it means, teacher. They were expecting a human Jesus. They were expecting a human Jesus. They weren't expecting a resurrected Jesus. And they depict themselves as not understanding this at all. And that's what I love about this story. They don't, you know, if, if you were kind of making this stuff up, you would be like, oh yeah, totally. I totally see where you're going with this. Yeah, totally death, res- you know, death, resurrection. Makes sense. Not how the story goes. Death doesn't really make sense. Resurrection, don't have a clue. That's how the story is depicted until later. And I would say this, that as you run through your doubts and run through this story, that I don't believe you need facts about an empty tomb. I think you need to, just like people in the text, what solved their problem? What changed their mind about Jesus? Anyone? They saw Jesus. They saw the risen Savior. In other words, they weren't moved to belief when they saw the empty tomb. They were moved to belief when they encountered the risen Savior. It's still what we need. There are more people who believe now, not being able to see Jesus, not being able to see the the empty tomb, than originally. It was a handful of people who had all the facts. They had eyewitnesses. They could go talk to these people. There were less people that will believe then than now. Why is that possible? Because by dying and rising again, Jesus put into a plan that sent his spirit that said, now everyone can experience the risen Savior. Everyone can experience me. You don't have to go to Jerusalem. You don't have to find the empty tomb. As an excursus, most times when you have a really important person die, you make, a, you make a shrine out of their tomb. There is no shrine to Jesus' tomb. They don't really know where it is because no one cared. It wasn't important. What was important was witnessing the risen Savior. He is risen. He's not here. He's not here. He's risen. Just as he told you, he's going to meet up with you in Galilee, which he did. Which he did. Some of the questions, how can you trust the resurrection? Not a lot of evidence to suggest that you say. You know, some would say, well, there's all these different accounts of the resurrection, so I don't know if I can really believe the resurrection because all these accounts have kind of differing views. I'm saying, do you remember 911? Anyone remember 911? 
I mean, if you didn't, like, where were you? Right? You remember 911. Uh, does everyone have the same account of 911? Do you have access to YouTube? You've seen there's pretty polar opposite views of 911. I'm reading Steve Jobs' biography. Anyone heard of Steve Jobs? Okay. First biography that kind of came out with him. The, by the way, the authorized biography of Steve Jobs, which is written by Walter I Isaacson. He had the permission of Steve Jobs to write his biography. He wrote it. Came out after he died. The new biography says, by those who know him better, is the better biography. Not authorized. Different view. Same guy. So you see which one is correct? Well, you decide. Point is, just because you have differing views does not make Steve Jobs go away. You have a different view of Steve Jobs, but he existed and he created Apple. It's kind of the facts. What do you think of Steve Jobs? Well, that's a different story, isn't it? That's exactly what I'm saying about the text. Differing views just only cause us to say, well, what do you say about Jesus? Doesn't eliminate the fact that he's there. But every writer of the Gospels, in fact, all of the New Testament affirm the resurrection. And some books are literally written as a defense against those who weren't believing in resurrection. Some questions, will resurrection involve a physical body? I would say, because it models Jesus' body, yes. I would say, yes, it does. We have a physical body. We're not going to be spirits. Some would say, yeah, we have an afterlife, but it's all a spiritual afterlife. No, the resurrection connects these two, that there's a spiritual life and a physical life that go together and we'll have both. That's what the physical resurrection is attempting to show us. Question, can I still be a Christian if I don't believe in a resurrection? The negative way to say this is no. The positive way to say this is, why would you want a Christianity without resurrection, friends? I guarantee you, you do not want a Christianity without the resurrection. It's morality. It's boring. It's hard. It's possible to do. And as Paul says, it's totally futile. When someone asks you, what if Christianity is not true? Your response, if you are a Christian, should not be, well, I guess I lived a good life anyways. Your response should be, it's terrible. That should be a response. If Christianity is not true, I have wasted my life. And you should pity me. You should feel bad for me if this isn't true. But I believe it is. But I believe it is. So how does the resurrection help us? Multiple ways. I'll go through these as fast as I possibly can. I think here's what the resurrection can mean for us. Resurrection means hope, friends. This is why it's so important for us as Christians. This is where our hope ultimately lies. There are some who would say, I don't want to talk about the afterlife. I want to talk about right now. And I would say, the only thing that makes sense of right now is the resurrection. The only thing that helps ultimately right now is the resurrection. Why? Because the resurrection makes sense of every pain and sorrow that you've ever gone through. Because the resurrection says one day it won't be like that. Those who believe in Jesus will not just have resurrected bodies, but they will have a resurrected earth. 
that comes in a package deal. New heavens, new earth, new body, new spirit, everything. Package deal. All in. This gives us great material hope. Because there's a lot of people right now, they want to redeem the material world and that's such a good, noble thing. But I would say, for what? For what? Why would we redeem a material world when we couldn't be any part of it? The resurrection connects these two together because when Jesus rose from the dead, he just didn't disappear. He met up with them in Galilee and he was like, see that fish? Hand it to me. I want to eat it. I'll show you. I got a physical body. If he, had, if he was just a spirit, it'd be like Casper the ghost. Remember Casper the ghost? He tried to eat something and just dropped to the ground, right? There's no stomach. Jesus is like, show me that fish. Pick it up. Eat it. Good. I made it. It's good. Put it in my body. Look at my hands. I got a scar. I hung on a cross. But I'm a new body. A brand new body. A redeemed body. Just like I'm going to redeem the whole world, I'm going to take the world as it is and redeem it back to what I originally created it for. That's why it's so important for us as Christians to know the story from the very beginning because in the very beginning, everything is good and that's the way God is always working towards. He's trying to get us back to those days, the good old days when we didn't sin and we worshiped God and we loved God and work was easy and there was no fights in between people and there was no pain. You want that kind of world? Resurrection comes with that, friends. Resurrection comes with that. I want that resurrection. I tell you that much. It gives us physical hope. Some of you are in such physical pain right now. You have physical ailments. Your body's falling apart on you. Your body's been in pain for multiple months, years maybe decades, with no hope in sight. You've got a disease. You've got an ailment. You've got something wrong with you. This past Saturday, I flew out to Regina to be with my good friend and uncle, my Uncle Roy. My dad's a twin, Ray and Roy. Go figure. I got the balding jeans. My dad got the ageless jeans. Thanks a lot, Dad. My Uncle Roy's awesome. I love him. I texted him. I said, can I talk about you this morning? Can I talk about this hope? Because I was so moved. I did not know my Aunt Sylvia. He was married to my Aunt Syl, my Aunt Sylvia. I didn't really know her that well. I just knew she was a little bit of a firecracker. And then I saw her brother get up and tell a bunch of jokes, and I was like, oh, man. I wish I would have known that Aunt Sylvia. Why did I not know that Aunt Sylvia? Because she has been battling diabetes for 40 years. I listened to the pain of her children say, we didn't ever get to experience the mom what we had hoped we would experience. She was angry. She was frustrated. They gave testimony. They gave witness to the fact that one of the most prominent memories in my cousin Dallas's mind was watching his half-dead mom drag herself to the dialysis machine before she got a kidney transplant. She died frustrated, one-legged, couldn't, couldn't see. She was actually at Urban Grace one time. She couldn't really talk. I'm sure she hated the music because it was so loud. My uncle said, praise the Lord for resurrection. 
praise the Lord for resurrection. Because he's not going to see a one-legged wife in heaven. He's going to see Aunt Sel. Her full body. I prayed that for him this morning. I sent him a text. I said, Uncle Roy, so happy that I can text this to you. Won't it be great when you get to see your Savior and your wife? He said, oh yeah, preach it, brother. Preach it. I love it. He's pretty conservative, but that's, that's a lot for him. It's physical hope, friends. For you and me. Physical hope. You want a resurrection, friends. There's an emotional hope. Some of you are in terrible agony. You're frustrated with doubt. You're wrought with doubt. You're wrought with the agony of emotional problems. You can't think straight. You're suffering through things like depression. Badly. It affects your work. You're suffering with other anxiety problems. You're suffering with all these things. Friend, there will come a day when Jesus says, I'm going to redeem all of that and make it new again. And make it new again. There's emotional hope. There's also spiritual hope. You know, this little tent we call a body, that's how the Bible describes it, a tent. I slept in tents, that's a good description. Falls apart really easy and hates getting wet. Right, it's a perfect description. Yeah, smells funny if you leave it, you know, clothed too long. This tent holds this little soul with a spirit. It's corrupt. I'm not talking about you, I'm talking about me. It's talking about I have desires in me that I can't stand, that I hate about myself. I hate the evil in my heart. I hate the kind of things I think. I'm so embarrassed to imagine that you could possibly see what goes on in my mind and my heart. I'm disgusted with myself. And there are so many days which I go, oh Jesus, please save this little heart of mine. This broken, corrupt heart that doesn't deserve to stand on a sage and preach your glorious gospel. I can't wait for the day I'm not being fatalistic here either when I say, I can't wait for the day when Jesus cleans my heart out for good. And sin looks boring to me. Not interesting. And my curiosity is not with, what if I sin more? Could I just have a little more pleasure? My curiosity would be like, tell me more about this resurrection thing. And then I wouldn't be worried about what people think or what people thought. I would only be concerned with what Jesus thinks of me, which is I am a son of the most high God. Here's what you can do to obtain the resurrected life. Repent and believe. Repent and believe. That is it. It is that simple. That sounds like a loophole if you're new to Christianity, doesn't it? And this sounds like a little bit of a crutch to me is what could be going through your head. Really? I just have to repent and believe in Jesus Christ? Yes, you do. And by repenting and believing in Jesus Christ, he says, I will come into your heart and I will start the cleaning process now. Sometimes I'll do some healing now. Sometimes I'll emotionally help you now. And if I don't, I am doing it because 
I'm leaving it in there because I want you looking toward me as your savior all the time. It's a way of helping you. It's like the bumpers in a bowling alley. You ever have those? You ever be a terrible bowler enough that they put up the bumpers for you? It's a terrible situation. Jesus uses suffering like bumpers to keep us going straight. He puts them up for us to draw us back to him and say, yeah, yeah. Remember? Remember? There's resurrection at the end of this, friends. There's resurrection at the end of this. And some days, I tell you what, I'm sure there is so much pain in this room that that's the only thing that keeps us going. See, all other religions do not provide this kind of a hope. They do provide afterlife of some sort. Yes, they purport to provide this. But friends, why do you think this is the Super Bowl halftime show for Christians? Because it hinges on this. It hinges on this. I'll call the band up because my time is over. I obviously could keep going. But I'm not going to because I think there's an opportunity for us to respond. And I think more information isn't going to move your heart. It's not going to be information that causes you to hope in the resurrected life. It is going to be an encounter with the risen Savior. Every single week we do something very special that was given to us by our Savior to remind us of death and resurrection. These are the symbols that were given. Wine and bread. Juice and crackers for some. Here's why these symbols are so important to us. Because the bread symbolizes that Jesus came. That one of the reasons why he could pay the sacrifice that he did was because he was the son of man. He was human. It wasn't just a spirit. It wasn't just a perfect God. It was a, it was a human being who lived the perfect life in order that he may exchange his life for ours if we believe in his name. The wine or the juice symbolizes the blood shed. The Bible describes that there is no forgiveness of sins without the shedding of blood. Meaning, when people make mistakes, someone always has to pay. The blood is the example that Jesus paid it all. Prostemai. Paid in full. So, we should not frown as we take the meal this morning. Today is Resurrection Sunday. Can't smile. That's the only rule we have here at Emma Grace. Can't not smile. Okay, so come and partake and respond to the risen Savior through His Spirit. He is beckoning all of us into a deeper understanding of Himself. He wants us deep to know Him deeply. He wants us to experience Him deeply. Let us come forward and partake and respond with the risen Savior.